The scripture for the message this morning is from John chapter 15, starting with verse 26. But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me, and you will also bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think that he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. Jesus Christ is the source of all things. And he is the sustainer of all things. He is the Lord over everything and everyone, and he is the Savior of all who look to him. And we have sung his praise this morning, and I think his spirit is present in the room with us now. And it just occurred to me as I was rising to come and pray that maybe some of you have been considering following Christ, and as we sang, perhaps the Holy Spirit moved on your heart, and you know that now is the moment for you, and now is the time for you to come. And I want to invite you to just bow your life before Jesus right now. Don't wait another moment. Now is your moment. Today is your day. And so as I pray right now for the message, I want to invite you to pray and surrender your life to Jesus. And as you surrender your life to Christ, come and tell somebody at church afterwards, and we'll walk with you, and we'll teach you, and we'll love you, and we'll be loved by you. But now is the time. Let us all bow our hearts before him who is the source and sustainer of everything. Jesus, we love you for who you are, and we're so grateful for the privilege of coming in this room to sing your praise today. Oh, Father, how I exalt you for the joy and the privilege of getting to exalt you. And I pray that you would do just that among us today. Father, you've done it in the songs, and now I pray that you would do it in the preaching. Exalt Jesus Christ in our eyes, I pray. Help us to see the beauty of who he is. Help us to see the power of who he is. Help us to see the grace that is in him and the life that is in him and the hope that is in him. Give us faith to believe today, Father. And I thank you for what you'll do through your word and by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, last week we sat at the feet of Jesus and we listened as he lovingly warned us about what life in this world was going to be like for those of us who love him. He told us, frankly, that the world is going to hate us. Everybody wants to be liked, everybody wants to be loved, but Jesus was honest with us, and he said that the world is going to hate you even as it hated me. Jesus taught us that the world hates us because he has chosen us out of the world, and we no longer belong to the world. We look like we do, but we don't. Jesus taught us that The reason the world hates us is because we testify that its works are evil by his wisdom and by his words. We don't testify about the evilness in the world from our own selves, from our own wisdom, and in our own words. We we learn from Jesus and we simply proclaim to the world what Jesus has proclaimed to us. And for this, the world hates us. To, uh, To the world, this seems like hypocrisy. To them, it seems like, who are we to preach to them about anything? The truth of the matter is that we're just recipients of grace who long for other people to bathe in the grace of God that we have come to bathe in. But the only way to get in that bath of grace is to see your sin and to confess it. There's no other way. So the church has to proclaim to the world that its deeds are evil, and for that, the world hates us. 
Jesus taught us that while the majority of the world does hate us and will hate us, some in the world are going to hear the message of the gospel that we preach and they're going to believe in Jesus. They're going to come out of the world and they're going to join us. They're going to become part of the great army of people who are bathing in the grace of God and who are willing to risk everything, even their very lives, to go into the world and preach about this grace. In short, Jesus promised us two things, beloved. In this world, we're going to suffer, and in this world, we're going to succeed as we obey the Great Commission. As we go into the world and seek to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe everything that Jesus commanded, we will suffer and we will succeed. And as we suffer and succeed, God has given us this great comfort in our hearts, namely, that he is in utter control of everything, even the world's hatred of us. We saw last week that the world's hatred of Jesus and the world's hatred of his people only fulfills the words of God. Jesus quoted it from Psalm 69.4. This is in John 15.25. You can see it there. They hated me without cause. Jesus said this word had to be fulfilled, which when you think it through means that God is using the hatred of the world to fulfill his purposes. Nothing can happen outside the purposes of God, beloved, and this is our great hope as we suffer and as we succeed in making disciples of all nations. With all this in mind, Jesus now adds to his teaching by introducing the Holy Spirit into the equation and by helping us understand that the way we suffer and succeed in the world is not by our flesh, but by his Spirit. It's not by might, it's not by power, but by my Spirit, says the Lord. It is the fellowship, the presence, the power of the Holy Spirit that causes us to do what we are able to do in this world. So with that, let's turn our attention. Let's give our hearts. Let's bow our our minds before the Lord Jesus and hear what he has to say to us in 15, 26 to 16, 4. Jesus begins in verse 26. But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, He will bear witness about me. Earlier, Jesus had promised that the Holy Spirit was going to come. If you look back at chapter 14 and look at verses 16 and 17, Jesus was building up with the disciples here. And we're coming more and more to a crescendo now. He says there, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you for how long? Forever. Even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he dwells with you, and he will be in you. And then look at chapter 14, verse 26. Jesus says it again. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Then when we come to chapter 15, verse 26, Jesus turns from prediction to a more affirmative pronouncement. And he says, when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father. The granting of the Holy Spirit to those who believe in Jesus was a certainty that at that time was only about 52 days away now. The the fulfillment came on the day of Pentecost. Jesus was sitting here with the disciples about 52 days earlier. The time was drawing near, beloved. It was drawing very near. And this is why Jesus speaks with such certainty. When the Helper comes. 
Now, this is an amazing statement because you have to realize he still has not endured the cross. There are many things still up in the air. How does he know that he's going to succeed? How does he know that he's going to make it through? How does he know that he's going to be able to endure the most torturous experience that any human being could possibly imagine in the history of heaven or on earth? How does Jesus know? Well, Jesus knows that he's going to endure because he knows the Father, beloved. And he has the Holy Spirit upon him. At his baptism, the Holy Spirit came upon him, and the text specifically says it remained upon him. It remains upon him forever. And Jesus walked not in arrogance, but in utter confidence. And by the presence and power of the Father and of the Holy Spirit, he would be able to endure all things, even the grossest hatred of the world. He would be able to endure it by the power of his Father, period. And so he affirmatively talks about what's going to happen on the other side. And on the other side, he says, my friends, I'm going to leave you another helper. It is going to happen when the helper comes. Now, this word helper just means one who comes alongside to help. It's a simple word. When it's used in a legal sense, it can mean an advocate or a lawyer. And John actually uses this word about Jesus in 1 John chapter 2. When he says, I write these things so that you will not sin, but if you do sin, you have an advocate. In other words, you have a helper, and your helper is the Lord Jesus Christ. When it's used in a general sense, it means a comforter or, or a helper. And I think in this, sen- in this context, Jesus is using the term not in a legal sense, but in a general sense. And I do think helper is the most helpful way to render the word. I think Jesus has texts like Psalm 54, 3-4 in mind, where David writes this. For strangers have risen against me. Ruthless men seek my life. They don't want to just harass him. They want to kill him. They do not set themselves or they do not set God before themselves. Behold, God is my helper. The Lord is the upholder of my life. And then David repeats in Psalm 118 verse 7. The Lord is on my side as my helper. He is with me. He is for me. He is standing in my circumstances. I will look in triumph on those who hate me. David was facing very fierce enemies. He was hated by people who had the desire and the power and the tools to kill him and to destroy his regime. But he looked to God as his helper And beloved, if God is your helper, then you will be helped. Can I get an amen to that? God is a great helper. And I think Jesus is drawing these kind of texts to mind and saying, I'm going to send you a helper. The world is going to hate you, but you will not be alone. And with that in mind, Jesus highlights three glorious things about this helper. First of all, he says that the helper is the spirit of truth which means that he is the Holy Spirit, which means that he is God. We are being helped by God himself. And because he is the spirit of truth, this means that he is the essence of truth. Just as Jesus said, I am the truth, so I think the spirit would say, I am the truth. And it means that the spirit operates solely on the basis of truth, period. In him is light and there is no darkness at all. The Spirit is completely honest, and He never deceives anyone in the slightest thing or about the smallest thing. The Spirit of truth, beloved, can be trusted. Oh, what a glorious thing it is to be able to trust. To trust. To know that somebody is telling you the truth and always telling you the truth. 
and you can just relax. And when that truth teller is God Almighty, oh, can you ever relax in your life? Can you ever have peace? He is the spirit of truth. Second, Jesus said that this helper proceeds or goes out from or is sent by the Father, even as the Father sent the Son. In 1416 and 1426, Jesus tells us that the Father is the one who gives or sends the Spirit in response to Jesus' prayers and in Jesus' name. Here in 1526, please notice, Jesus says, I'm going to send the Spirit to you, but I'm going to do this from the Father. So I will send the Spirit from the Father. When we think through all this, I think what it simply means is that while Jesus has a measure of authority over the Holy Spirit's ministry in the lives of God's people, the Father has ultimate authority. There is an order in the Trinity with regard to their operations on earth. In heaven, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are absolute equals, and they share absolutely in every attribute of God. But as regards their ministry on the earth, there is an order, and the order is clear. There is the Father, and then there is the Son, and then there is the Holy Spirit. And Jesus is simply saying that he's going to send the Spirit from the Father with all the authority of the Father and the Son. And that's really the point we should take. For those of you who know something about theological history, you'll know that this verse has created, I mean, thousands of pages of writing about the nature of the Trinity, and some of that's helpful. A lot of it is missing the point of this text. This text is simply saying that the Spirit is sent out from the Father and sent out from the Son. And the real punch of it is that when the Spirit of truth comes into the earth, he comes with all authority. That's the point. He comes as the one who speaks truth and he comes with all the authority of the Father and of the Son. Nobody on this earth, this very moment, has authority like the Holy Spirit has authority, period. Three, Jesus says that the Helper's primary task in the world is to bear witness about Jesus, not about himself. The Helper's primary task in the world is to bear witness about Jesus, first to those who believe in Jesus, and then second to the broader world. On the one hand, the Holy Spirit brings the disciples into remembrance of all that Jesus taught and did. He did that in the first generation, and he continues to do that in this generation. It is the Holy Spirit that causes believers to see the glory of Jesus and rejoice in the glory of Jesus and delight in Jesus himself. I've been sick most of the week. Yesterday, there was a point in the day when I, I was losing my voice. I was wondering if I was even able to preach today. But I was sitting there this morning determined that I wasn't going to sing to save my voice, and the worship team did such an amazing job, I couldn't help myself. I was seeing the beauty of Jesus and just hearing the words, and I had to sing to him. I had to sing. I had to sing. And this was the Holy Spirit at work in me, beloved. Whenever you see, whenever you see something of the beauty of Christ, it's because the Spirit is at work in your life, period. Sometimes we get so caught up in all these fancy things about the work of the Spirit, and we'll talk about that more in the next couple of weeks, but the primary thing he wants to do is show you the beauty of Jesus. That's what he's up to, first to believers. And then, on the other hand, the Spirit continues to proclaim the message of Jesus in the world and to the world, so that the world continues to be confronted with the inescapable reality of the gospel and, yes, the coming day of judgment. Jesus was about to depart from this earth and his disciples were very perplexed about that. 
But the living witness of the gospel of God from God himself was going to continue in the person of the Holy Spirit. It wasn't going to come to an end. In fact, it was just beginning. In Jesus' absence, the Holy Spirit himself would be and still is the primary preacher of the gospel in the world. And since he has been sent as the spirit of truth to proclaim truth with all the authority of heaven and on earth, he will accomplish the purposes for which the Father and the Son sent him. Period. You know this is the theme of the book of Acts, don't you? The theme of the book of Acts is that the purposes of God cannot be stopped. Read the book of Acts with that in mind. Problems rise up from inside the church, but the Holy Spirit keeps pressing the church forward. Problems rise up from outside the church, but the Holy Spirit, at the command of Christ, keeps pressing the church forward. The gospel of God cannot be stopped. This is the point of the authority, the presence, the ministry, the Christ-exalting ministry of the Holy Spirit. He will exalt Jesus in all the earth, period. End of story. Now, in addition to the witness of the Spirit, please look with me at verse 27. Jesus adds something very important here. He says then, and you also, the disciples, you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. Now, that statement does have broader implications for the the life of the church, and I'll talk about that in a moment. But if we stay up here in the upper room with Jesus and the disciples, for the moment, he's just talking to them. He's saying that the 12 of you, really, there's 11 left. Paul later will be added to their fold. But the 12 apostles that you will also bear witness about me in the world. I think what Jesus is promising here is that these 12 men together are going to be the ones who proclaim Christ from the Old Testament and then also write the New Testament so that the true foundational, unchangeable teaching of the church would be established by the Lord through their lives. Jesus is appointing them now to be heralds in a way that no one else in the history of the world was ever before or will ever again be heralds. There are different points of view about apostles in our current day. Our, the, 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 the official view of our church is that there are not apostles in our day, at least with a capital A. There were 12 people who served as apostles, and they had a specific task. And that task was to bear witness to Christ in an authoritative way. And by the grace of God, they did just that. Jesus is faithful to his people in all he says, and so he fulfilled this word, and he caused them to do just that. But the question is, how? How did he cause them to do that? Well, here's a place where the witness of the Spirit and the witness of his people come together. Because while it's true that the Holy Spirit bears witness to Jesus in a number of ways, I remember once before I was saved, I was, uh, I was living on the streets for a few years of my life, and I remember sleeping in this one place and looking up at the sky and just seeing stars beyond what I could even count. And I believe in that day the Holy Spirit opened up my eyes to, to think this thought, there has to be a God. It was my first real move toward God. I was 16 years old, a drug addict, hopeless, but I looked up at that sky and went, wait a minute, that could not have just happened. Somehow the Holy Spirit was revealing himself through creation, and that happens today. But the main way the Holy Spirit bears witness in the world is through people who love Jesus in the world. When the people of God call upon God for power and boldness to proclaim the gospel, it is the Holy Spirit who comes upon them and gives them words and gives them wisdom and gives them humility and gives them love and gives them power and gives them willingness to suffer. It is the, the witness-bearing ministry of the Holy Spirit through the church that causes the gospel to be known in the world. 
This is what Jesus was promising to these brothers. He's saying to them, I'm not going to leave you alone. In fact, if you look back with me to chapter 14 again, verses 16 to 18, I think he's really repeating what he said there in some ways. Jesus said, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells in you, and he will be with you. And then here's the key point. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. And what he's saying is, I'm going to come to you in the person of the Holy Spirit. And because Jesus is faithful and always does what he says he's going to do, he did in fact send the helper upon his people on the day of Pentecost, and they were tremendously helped. Jesus did cause them to proclaim the gospel in the world. Jesus did allow them to suffer in the world. Jesus did allow them to succeed and win many people to Christ in the world. Jesus Christ did do what he said he was going to do because he's faithful. And having completed this work in them, he continued to work in the following generations right down to our day, doing the self-same thing, giving the Holy Spirit to his people so that they could do his will in the world. We don't proclaim the world and we don't endure the hatred of the world by the power of the flesh. We do it by the power, the presence, the actual daily fellowship of the Holy Spirit. That's how it happens. There is a, a great difference between that first generation and us. Namely, that they were tasked by God to proclaim the truth in a way that was authoritative and permanent. There are no more New Testament authors among us anywhere in the world in the body of Christ and never will, will there be but we share a great similarity with the apostles, a great similarity, much greater than the difference we share, in fact. And that is that Jesus has graciously granted to everyone who believes in him the helper so that they can endure this world, proclaim the gospel to the world, bear much fruit in the world to the glory of the Father and to the joy of their souls. Jesus has not left us as orphans, beloved. Oh, some days, doesn't it just feel hard to just keep enduring in the world as a believer? Doesn't it feel hard to just keep putting one foot in front of the other? Never forget, he has not left you alone. He has given you a helper. And if God is your helper, you will be helped. You will be helped. Having assured his disciples about the coming of the Spirit, Jesus then continues in chapter 16, verse 1. And he said, I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. I love it when Jesus just says, now here's the point I'm trying to make. <laughs> Sometimes it's hard to discern what's the main thing you're saying here and here in verse one, he just says it. Here's, here's the deal. I'm telling you all these things because I don't want you to fall away. Now when I thought carefully about the words all these things, I came to the view that all these things refer to everything he's been teaching from the beginning of chapter 15. So I think he has 15, one to 27 in mind. I think he's referring to his wisdom about the vine and the branches. I think he's referring to the, his wisdom about bearing fruit in the world through intimate intercession with the Father. I think he's referring to the nature and practice of love among the disciples. I think he's referring to the nature of the relationship between the disciples and the world. And I think he's talking about the soon coming presence of the Holy Spirit. Jesus' heart in all these things was to open his disciples' eyes to a way of life and then to call them into that way of life. He didn't want them just to have intellectual understanding. He wanted them to live in a certain way, beloved. He wanted them to know what it meant to live by intimate intercession with the Father. 
He wanted them to know what it was like to love one another and remain faithful to one another, even as he is faithful to us. He wanted them to know what it's like to endure the hatred of the world and yet love the world rather than hating the world in return. And he wanted them to know the close fellowship of the Holy Spirit that caused them to be able to suffer and succeed as they obeyed his will. He did not want them to fall away. Rather, he wanted them, he wanted us to endure. He wanted us to abide. He wants us to bear much fruit in the world. Now the word here for fall away, it more literally means to stumble, and here stumble so as to fall, and I find it a more helpful metaphor because I don't know what falling away really means, but I can get my mind around stumbling, and I have experienced stumbling many a time in my life before Christ and after Christ. He does not want us to stumble so as to fall. He does not want us to cease believing. He does not want us to fall on the ground so that we cannot or do not follow him anymore. This brings to mind the parable of the seeds in Matthew I think it's chapter 13. Yeah, Matthew 13, where especially where Jesus talked about the seed that falls on the rocky soil. Let me read to you what Jesus said. Jesus said, as for the seed that was sown on the rocky soil, or rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. And yet, he has no root in himself. He endures for a while. But when tribulation and persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. I think the Lord has this verse in mind when he's saying what he's saying up in the upper room because he knows that these guys are about to face an onslaught of hatred like they have never faced in their lives and he does not want them to fall away. So he said all these things to ensure that his disciples would have deep and strong root in themselves by virtue of their relationship to the vine and to the vine dresser. Please hear what I'm saying. The root is not about the disciples. The root is about the work of the Father in the disciples. The root is Jesus himself. And he wanted them to be connected to Jesus because that's the only way to endure in this world. You try to endure this world by the flesh and you will fail. Try to endure this world by clinging to your helper, capital H, helper, and you will endure indeed. This is what Jesus wanted. He wanted them to bear much fruit for the glory of the Father and the eternal joy of their souls. In fact, he said twice so far, I want you to know the fullness of my joy. That's what I want for you. That's what all of this is about. And having revealed his aim, Jesus basically reiterated the point that they're going to be hated in the world, but now he added some more detail in chapter 16, verse 2. Please look there with me. Jesus said to these men that were soon to experience these things, they will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think that he is offering service to God. We've talked about this before, but let me remind you that to be put out of the synagogues meant that a Jew was cut off from the civic and religious life of his people and ostracized from fellowship with his family and friends. It would be a very difficult thing in that culture to be cut out of the synagogue and be able to just function in the world. It would be very, very hard. It would be very hard for a person like that to even secure the basic necessities of life. To be cut out of the synagogue is to be cut out of the culture. It would be like having your citizenship revoked in the United States and being forced to stay here. But I think it would be even worse than that because culturally, everybody would be conditioned to shun you. Even if they didn't want to shun you, they would be conditioned to shun you. And this was about 
to happen to these people. And worse yet, Jesus adds that some of those who cast the disciples out of the synagogues, out of normative Jewish life, were also going to kill them. Kill them. Under the deceptive notion that they were doing God's will. Like the Apostle Paul, before he came to know Jesus, these people were going to zealously persecute and even murder people who thought, who claimed to know Jesus and to love Jesus, thinking that they were doing the will of God by purging Israel of unbelief. The truth is, the unbelief was inside of their hearts, and they were coming against God Himself by coming against the church. But they were actually going to kill some of the apostles. And if history is accurate, if our understanding of history is accurate, 11 out of the 12 apostles paid for their proclamation of the gospel with their very lives. So Jesus' words actually came true. This was not a theoretical verse here, beloved. They were going to be cut off from normative Jewish life, and 11 out of 12 of them were going to be killed, period. But whatever the presenting reasons... One thing I love about Jesus is that he always goes deeper to the roots of what's happening and not just staying on the surface. In verse 3, he tells us that the reason they would actually do these things is because the people who would come against the church never knew God or his son, Jesus Christ. And surely in that day, the Jews would have greatly protested that both they and their ancestors knew Yahweh and knew him well. But despite their protestations, the truth of the matter is that while they knew things about Yahweh, They didn't actually know him in the relational sense of the word. They did not walk with him. They did not talk with him. Of course, there were many Jews who did actually know him, but we're talking about the preponderance, especially of the Jews that were in power. They had all the power in their hands, and they had God's name on their lips, but, beloved, they did not know him. And this is why they were going to kill the church. This is why they're going to kill people who love Jesus. And this is what the disciples were soon to face. And Christ was preparing them for this. Now, as Protestant Christians living in the United States of America, we are not under the threat of being shunned from Jewish synagogues and killed by those who shun us. But I would suggest to you that it's fairly obvious that the day is coming soon when we too are going to be ostracized from our society. Increasingly, I think large corporations and small businesses will not want to hire or retain Christian people, and they'll find ways to shove us out if they can because we won't go along with the programs. Increasingly, I think public schools and colleges and universities and even many private ones will push certain social agendas through their curricula and through their activities that will force Christians to either go along and keep their place in those institutions or resist and be fired, resist and be shut out. That day's coming soon. Increasingly, I think the state and local governments are probably going to restrict homeschooling and may even outlaw it because they want access to our children. This has happened in other countries, and it would not surprise me at all if it happens in our country. Increasingly, I think churches are going to lose their privileged place in society. We're going to find it difficult to do business the way we have been for hundreds of years. We might find it hard to buy land. We might find it hard to do business at all. We might even find it hard to offer services to the world in the name of Jesus. And we're going to find it increasingly hard to teach the truth of the Bible in the world without suffering. I believe this is coming soon. I'm not super clear about the details. I'm no prophet. I can just see what I see. And whatever the details are going to be, it seems to me that there is a great sifting that is soon going to come upon our land and upon the church. The wheat will be separated from the weeds inside the house of God. Judgment begins, the Lord says, with the house of God. 
The time is coming soon when true Christians will be separated from those who claim to be Christians but who do not know the Lord and who in fact love the world. The time is coming soon when true Christians will be separated from those who claim to know Jesus but who actually hate the world and do not love it by proclaiming the gospel to it. What I'm saying is that I see a, a middle place where the true church will rise up. And on one side, you'll have pretenders and liberals and others who actually don't believe the gospel who will be cut away because it's just going to become too uncomfortable for them to continue naming the name of Christ. In fact, I think the majority of evangelical churches, if they were to hear the message that's being preached in this church today, many of them would just fall out immediately. They wouldn't want much of anything to do with this. They want their best life now. That's not what Jesus promised us. On the other side, you got people like the Westboro Baptist Church and others who in the name of Christ hate the world and do not preach the gospel to the world. They are no more Christians than the liberals and they're also going to fall away. They're going to be so ostracized. But in the middle, beloved, in the middle, as the sifting happens, the wheat will rise up. The true church will rise up, beloved. This is going to be a hard process, but it's good news. The true church will be revealed. And we will learn to call upon the name of our Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ while we live in the world. We will live, learn to love one another no matter what the world thinks about us. We will learn to persevere in the world and love the world even as the world hates us. We will love, learn to proclaim the gospel of life to people who want to take our lives. We will learn to depend upon the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit and his fellowship in our lives will become sweeter and sweeter as persecution gets more and more intense. I really do think there's a one-to-one -one ratio here. As persecution rises, the sweetness of the fellowship of the Holy Spirit also rises in the lives of people who truly believe. The world will soon come against the church with great ferocity in our land and I think in our lifetimes. But we have no need to fear, beloved, and we have no need to hate the world in return. Jesus has told us about these things so that we will not fall away. And do you see that if he's telling us about them beforehand, he knows what's coming already. He's already got the future secured for us. We have nothing to fear. We just need to be sober about what's coming. We need to be sober about what we're gonna have to endure. And we need to be happy in this fact that Jesus doesn't want us to fall away. Because guess what? Jesus is God. And if Jesus does not want his people to fall away, we are not going to fall away. He will preserve us. He will cause us to persevere by his spirit and by his presence. To drive this truth deep into our hearts. Jesus essentially repeats himself in the first part of verse four and says this. But I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. In the original context, these words, their hour, I think refers to the time when the Jews would unleash persecution upon the church with great ferocity. But as sobering as that was, the specificity of Jesus' words, their hour, shows that he was in utter control of everything they were about to do. Even as this word had to be fulfilled in Jesus' life, they hated me without cause, so now this word has to be fulfilled in the life of the church. They hate Jesus in us without cause. We have to become like our master in suffering so that we can share with him in glory, beloved. And while the world wreaks havoc upon the church, God is in total control and he will use the suffering of his people to bring about many goods, two of which I want to highlight to you this morning. 
First of all, on the great day of judgment, when God gathers every soul to judge them, he will vindicate the faith of his people by appealing to the actions of the world against his people in order to convict the world and justify his judgments against them. God does not need to justify himself to anybody, but he will. He will bring so much evidence to the table that not a soul will say God is wrong. Every soul will be silenced. Every soul will fall before the Lord. Every soul will accept their judgment for what it is. There will be a kind of worship in every soul. Some will bow their knees to praise Jesus' name, and some will bow their knees under the weight of the judgment that was just pronounced upon them. But every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess that God is right in his judgments. And when that happens, God promises us that his people will rejoice. Listen to these words from Revelation 11. John writes, we give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. That time has come, and the people of God rejoice. They rejoice. Because God has heard, God has set all things right. And when God sets all things right, he will turn to them and he will say this, Revelation 18.20, rejoice over her, that is the one who has been judged. We'll just say the world. Rejoice over the world who has been judged, O heaven, and you saints, and you apostles, and you prophets. Why should we rejoice? For God has given judgment for you against her. That's why. God will vindicate his people. Suffering will last for a moment. The glory of remaining faithful to Jesus will last forever and ever and ever. He will turn the evil of the world to this great, great good. That his people and mainly his name will be vindicated and they will bow before him in judgment. Second thing, even as the Lord used the hour of the cross to provide absolute forgiveness and eternal life for all who believe in him, so God will use the hour of our suffering to bring about the salvation of some people from every tribe, tongue, and nation on this earth. Now, I am not saying that the suffering of the church adds to the work of Jesus on the cross. Nobody can add to an infinite work. What I am saying is that Jesus gives us the privilege of joining him in suffering in the world, but suffering on behalf of the world. Think about this, beloved. Jesus was about to receive hatred like none of us have ever imagined on the cross. And yet, because they put him to death on the cross, the opportunity for eternal life was now open to everybody who will believe. God took the hatred of the world and turned it to great good, and he'll do the same thing for us. Over the next couple weeks, I'll share some stories with you of hatred I have seen and experienced in the world from unbelievers, and yet watched that very hatred be turned so that some people in the situation actually got saved. God will do this for us, beloved. As we learn to endure the world and yet love the world by preaching the gospel to the world, God will win some to himself. And this is a great, great encouragement. In the disciples' day, they were in fact put out of the synagogues. But you know, it occurred to me earlier this week as I was pondering these things, that if they were not put out of the synagogues, I don't think the church would ever have been established in the world the way that it's been established to this day. Because they were forced out of the Jewish institutions, 
they had to figure out a way to organize their life in Christ together. And of course, the church has been flawed over the last 2,000 years. We'll be quick to confess that, I hope. But the church has also been the glorious witness to Jesus Christ in the world. And that came because of this brief moment of suffering, of being shut out of the life of the people of God. Yes, there was a moment of suffering, and yes, there is an eternity of glory because the church was established. And in our day, beloved, we will suffer in the world. Some of you in this room will probably lose your jobs. Some of you in this room will probably not be offered positions. Some of you in this room, your lives will take a sharp left turn because you're gonna remain faithful to Jesus and you're gonna suffer in this world. But I want you to know, that as you stand, not in arrogance, but in humility before God and love the people who are hating you, God is gonna use your suffering for a greater good. God will turn all things to this good, the glory of his name in the world. The Holy Spirit is not stopped by the machinations of human beings. He is not impeded by the rage of the world. In this world, we will suffer. But suffering is neither our identity nor our badge that we wear, and it's not our future, beloved. It is not our destiny. Suffering is not something we look for. It's just something that we're willing to endure because we love. That's it. The reason we suffer is because we love and we're willing to proclaim the gospel to people who might hate us for a time so that some of them will believe. We will suffer in this world, but our suffering will not last forever, and it will produce greater things than itself. Sometimes, you know, Jesus said this was their hour. I appreciate that he said it was just an hour. He said when their hour comes, only an hour. He didn't say their day or their decade or their millennia. Now, I know it's been 2,000 years since he said that, but you gotta think in God terms, their time of persecuting the church is only just an hour. It's small. Sometimes it feels unbearable. Sometimes we begin to bend under the weight and just say, Lord, how long is this gonna be? And I think when we cry out to the Lord and ask that question, he will answer us just like he answered those precious souls in Revelation chapter six. Let me read this for you. And I pray that you'll be greatly comforted by this. John writes, when he, the Lord Jesus, opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God. They had been killed for preaching the gospel in the world and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? How long will this take, O Lord? How long will we have to endure? How long will we have to wait? Then they were each given a white robe and they were told this, to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they, they themselves had been killed for the sake of the gospel. These precious and faithful souls honestly cried out to the Lord and he answered their prayer. He did not give them a lot of detail, did he? He did not fully answer what they were asking, but he gave them confidence. He gave them assurance. He gave them faith. He gave them the strength to know that he was in control and that the world was not in control of him. He gave them the strength to know that the hatred of the world would not have the final word, but that he would have the final word. And when the time was right, the time would come. And because they received that assurance, you know what they were able to do? Just rest a little longer. Just rest a little longer. And it may be that for some of us, when we feel the burden of living in this world, we come before the Lord and he doesn't answer every detail of everything we ask 
but he helps us to press on just a little bit longer. He helps us just to be at peace a little bit longer. Jesus taught us that all these things will come upon us so that when it happens, we will remember his words, embrace his way of life, love one another, love the world that hates us, and bear much fruit in this world. That's what he wants. Suffering isn't the point. Suffering is just a part of fruit bearing, that's all. As the true vine of God, he wants us to remain in him and bear much fruit in him, and he is determined to cause that to happen. Please hear this believing soul. He is determined to cause you to persevere in him. This is his work in you. This is his work for you and for the glory of his great name. And so I pray that as sobering as Jesus' words are today, that we'll have the eyes to see the hope and the joy that are all shot through them. And I pray that we'll embrace that joy. So what then shall we do in light of these things? What shall we do in light of the near certainty that we're going to ourselves experience persecution in the coming years and decades? Well, I just have three very simple things to you to say to you. Nothing profound, but I do think important. First of all, let us be a people who read and believe the words of Jesus every day of our lives. Now, you hear that exhortation a lot here at this church, so one thing that happens when you hear something a lot is you kind of die to hearing that thing anymore, and I just want to encourage you not to be deaf to this. Just hear what I'm saying. Be a person who loves the Bible. I'm not saying be good boys and girls and check off the box that says you had your quiet time and do your Christian duty. I'm not talking about duty. What I'm talking about is opening up the Bible every day and reading the words of your master and understanding them so that when his words come about, you'll look back and realize that he's done everything he said. His words are designed to give us hope, beloved. And as we understand his promises and we see his promises fulfilled, our faith is built and our hope is increased and our joy is increased. So why cut your soul off from joy and hope? Why do that? Just open up the word. Listen to what Jesus has to say. Let him cause you to persevere through his words. His words are the primary means by which he causes us to persevere in the world. So let us be a people of the word. This is not about duty. This is about delighting in the words of our master who has not left us alone. Second thing, let us embrace and trust the Holy Spirit who's been given to all of us who believe so that we can do the will of God in this world. A week ago Thursday, when I was preparing last week's message, I was all in this, all all day Wednesday, I spent almost the whole day studying and thinking through many things, and I woke up Thursday morning, I was was already starting to feel a little bit sick, I was feeling weak, and I just, I think the first thing I said to the Lord that morning is, Lord, I just don't want to be resisted today, I don't want to be hated by people today, I don't, I don't, I just don't want, I just don't want this, why does this have to be so hard, Father, Why? And as I just sat there and waited on him, he very quickly helped me see that my eyes were fixed on the wrong person, namely myself. And as I shifted my eyes from myself to my Savior, I'm being honest with you, I just had a peace wash over me. I just felt the stress of being hated by the world wipe wipe away. The, The hurt of being rejected by my brothers who I love very much and I want them to know Jesus and they, they don't want to know Jesus. That, it just, the pain of it just went away, and I felt peace. I felt peace. What I know is that our Father has given us a helper to cause us to endure. And the burden for enduring is not on our shoulders today. Here's the only burden on our shoulders. Lift your eyes up and look at him. Look at him. 
And the spirit of truth who loves to reveal truth will mainly reveal himself and reveal truth to you as you open up his word. Reading the Bible is not mainly an intellectual process. It is a relational process. It is the main way by which the people of God fellowship with the Holy Spirit. So embrace him, beloved. Listen to him. Depend upon him. Fix your eyes upon him. And if it all comes to feel so heavy, just know your eyes have transferred somehow. Just take a moment. If you're at work or something and you don't have a lot of moments, just go, go to the bathroom or something. Go into a stall. Take two minutes. Put your eyes on God. Just put your eyes on God and let the peace of God that passes understanding wash over you. And then third, I just want to say, as you make a life of being in the Word and depending on the Spirit, learn to live the life Jesus is commending to us now in John 15. Have intimate discussion with your Father about everything. Love each other and love the world that hates you. It's a simple way of life. There's nothing complex here at all. Love, love, and love. That's all it's about. And so let me pray now that God will help us with these things. Let me pray that God will make these things real in our lives. Our Father, I am so profoundly grateful to you for giving us this section of John, for telling us honestly what it was going to be like and what it is like to live in this world and for giving us the wisdom we need and the power we need to endure in this world and also prosper in this world and also to do your will in this world. I'm grateful, Jesus, that you have caused us to be part of your suffering so that we can also be part of your glory. I'm grateful that we get to know you and the power of your resurrection and the fellowship of your suffering so that will also know the fullness of your joy. I'm so grateful. And I pray that you will use this word in every person's life. I pray that you will apply it to each of us in custom-designed ways. And I pray that you will cause us to be fruitful this very day for the glory of your name and for our joy and also for the blessings of this world. In Jesus' mighty name we pray, amen.